1: I have heard many times that we either, one, do not talk about our mental health condition, or two, having a mental health condition reflects a lack of faith in God. Both of those things are very toxic to an individual, whether they be a believer or not. Simply put, if we do not talk about our mental health and we keep it inside, we internalize it to a point of where it can just bring us all the way down. But if we also look at it in light that we do not have enough faith in God, it makes sense of why we would want no one to know, because it would make us seem as the subpar Christian. The truth of the matter is, is that our mental health is our physical health. You would never, Hear another Christian say to you, you have high blood pressure? Well, that's just a lack of faith in God. Or you have diabetes? That's just a lack of faith in God. Or, I'm sorry, you had a heart attack? You must be lacking faith in God. That's simply false. False. And I would be very leery of someone who proclaimed to be a Christian that had that type of mindset. Shonda Pierce, who is a well-known Christian comedian, went through a bout of depression where her, excuse me, where her husband, who was an alcoholic, died of alcohol poisoning. And she would stand on stage every night and say something to the effect of, this concert is brought to you by 400 milligrams of Effexor and or 300 milligrams of Welbutrin. And some people would laugh, but she said that she would get letters all the time saying how she did not need to talk about that, that that she had, if she would just trust God, if she would have faith that God would bring her out of this. And so her line was, well, if all it takes for me to come out of this is to have faith, then why don't you have faith and take your glasses off and drive home? And it really is truly that we must realize that mental health is not a reflection of our faith. Now, while I'm a Christian counselor, I'm not a noethetic Christian counselor in that I don't believe that every mental health condition you have is a result of sin. Let me say that again. I do not believe that every mental health condition that you have is a result of sin. And with that being said, then that opens up a whole new avenue of treatment. It's not a lack of faith in God. It's our physical health. And so we go get treatment. And and I would encourage you to not be silent about it. As a matter of fact, to be very intentional about not being silent because we don't suffer alone. And it might just be that your vulnerability of telling your story helps someone else to realize that it's not a lack of faith, and they in turn get help as well. A lot of times within our depression or anxiety or any other mental health condition, we tend to internalize. And sometimes we go to seek these religious experiences and religious highs that kind of put a Band-Aid on the situation. Now, I'm not trying to say that God would not heal you of these conditions in much the way that God could heal you from any other condition, but simply put, it doesn't always happen that way. And so a lot of times people who are coming out of addiction or coming out of a depression, they will go into these church religious programs, and, and they will become so involved in the church and the things of religion that, that they become hyper-religious, as I would say. But they've just stuck a Band-Aid on the problem. They have not addressed the origin of the issue. And at some point in time, you have to be very intentional and pull that Band-Aid off and keep the coping of worshiping God and being close to Him, but to understand that you must resolve the root of the problem, whatever that problem is. There are things that we deal with, such as bipolar, that you cannot treat with simply trusting in God or even therapy that it is a biological chemical issue that can only be resolved with medication. And so once you get to the root of that problem and you treat it, you become well. But so many times we, as I already said, we internalize. And so we must not be the person that just lives in today, but we are very intentional with our day. We have a plan. We know what we're going to do and we stick to it and do it. One of the greatest pieces of advice I think that I give to people is that when you feel depressed and you feel like you don't want to do something, that should be your warning sign that you need to go do it. And once you do it, you're going to feel better. You see, the key to mental health is being intentional. We intentionally go get help, wherever that may be. We intentionally live our lives. If you were Diagnosed with diabetes, you would intentionally stop eating certain foods. You would intentionally take your insulin or whatever medication. You would intentionally check your blood sugar. And it's the same way with mental health. We intentionally live to not just get better, but to maintain health. Friend, don't let anyone ever tell you, just trust in God. That sounds like a bold statement coming from a minister. But I would say to you, don't just trust in God, get help. Hey everybody, Doc Bryan here, and welcome to Doc Talks, where we talk about people's troubles, trials, tribulations, and hopefully triumphs in life. Today I have with me a guest, Randall Stroud, and he is all the way in Nashville, Tennessee. So Randall, it's good to have you with me.
0: Uh, It's a pleasure to be here. Hopefully we can discuss some things which will bring some encouragement to any listeners.
1: Yeah, that that is our that is our goal here to just be vulnerable and tell our stories so that we can give hope to others. Absolutely. So are you originally from the Tennessee area?
0: Uh, Yes, uh, I've traveled all around the United States. I've, I've lived, you know, various places. But uh, I don't know. I guess this is just my headquarters, where the good Lord just keeps sending me back here time and time again. But sometimes you don't appreciate your hometown until you go other places, and you're like, "Oh wow, there there are good things about where I'm from," you know? Yeah. But who who knows where I'll end up next? You know, God only knows. But I'm back here for now.
1: <laughs> yeah, I lived in Nashville for about two weeks. That's all I could afford, <laughs> and then I had to come back home.
0: It's certainly rising here. Something like I don't know close to a hundred people a day are moving here from places like California and New York. It's got some good and bad coming with it for sure.
1: Yeah. Uh, Well, I moved there. A buddy of mine lives over in Knoxville and he got me a job and I can't even remember the name of it. It's been so long ago. It's one of the nightclubs and I was in their house band playing bass guitar and I didn't like the scene, you know,
0: Knoxville, I actually lived out there in 2016, very briefly, and they have a good college football scene out there with, with UT. But besides that, uh, yeah, it can get a little stale out there.
1: Yeah. So tell me about your home life. Do uh, you have brothers, sisters?
0: So yeah, growing up, I, I have a twin sister. Uh, I didn't show up on the ultrasound. Mm-hmm. So I, I kind of came out as a surprise and people thought that my mom just had a lot of water retention. So I was a a surprise. Uh, I have an older brother and I have a half sister that my father had in a previous relationship before he met my mother.
1: Gotcha. So uh, what was it like having a twin?
0: It's interesting. Uh, Me and her are still quite close. Uh, I joke around and say that she's the the good twin. I'm the evil (laughs) twin. (laughs) I I only say that because, uh, you know, she's just she's great. You know, she's always sort of been the conscience of the family, just like in our political sphere right now. There's all kinds of uh, extreme elements. And even in my own life, I've had a tendency to kind of, you know, swing way over here and then way over here and sort of explore my belief system. Whereas my, my sister's always sort of been that stable horse that's been able to kind of look at every everything within our family and not pick sides and sort of be that that peace element, which is a good thing, but I also feel sorry for it too, always sort of being that default mediator. But yeah. but yeah, it's it's interesting being a twin for sure.
1: Yeah. Uh, but blessed are the peacemakers.
0: Uh, oh Amen. Yeah. Um, Absolutely.
1: So and is it true that with twins, there are some kind of telekinesis or where you can just kind of feel what the other one's feeling? Have you ever experienced that?
0: One hundred percent, several times. It happened more whenever we were children. I mean, I can give you all kinds of crazy stories. We could probably do a whole podcast episode just on being a twin. I think as you get older and, you know, maybe I'm getting a little unscientific here, but my personal belief is that whenever we're young, I think that we're more inclined to the quote unquote spiritual world because we don't have these, you know, preconceived things that the world's telling us what's real, what's fake children to see things as they are. Yeah. Like I just remember being a kid and being at home watching Saturday morning cartoons. And, and one particular moment, my sister was riding her bicycle and she was at least a quarter of a mile away. And I heard her crying uh, in my head and I go run to where she was and she had fell. And, and she said, you know, how did you know I was hurt? I said, well, I heard you. And she said, there's no way you could have heard me if you were at home. I said, well, I did. Yeah. You know, so it's just stuff like that. You know, it's pretty incredible.
1: (laughs) Yeah, it is. And, and scientifically uh, we can't, we can't explain it. So growing up in the home, tell me about school, middle school, high school, where Did you do very well? Was it hard for you?
0: My childhood was very interesting. It it was a mix of all kinds of stuff. You know, both my parents came from extremely humble beginnings. You know, my father was, he had nine other siblings. Oh, wow. You could imagine how, you know, money got stretched very tight. Him growing up, hard to get attention. And then his parents ended up divorcing. Same thing with my mom. Her parents divorced whenever she was a, a teenager. Our father was in the military. he actually got murdered by a neighbor after coming home from the war and some stupid argument over a dress that was being borrowed. <laughs> you know it, it was a really silly thing, but it ended up in a tragedy so she had been through a lot in her life. and then growing up, we were living like in a trailer park, you know it was kind of poverty. That didn't last too long because my father started his own business. he realized that he wasn't making enough doing what he was doing and started making pretty good money. but my father was also kind of cheap too. So we stayed in the bad neighborhood despite having enough money to move out. And I went to some schools that were pretty bad and I was a minority too, you know I was like the, the token white kid in most of my my classes. so I stood out like a sore thumb. and I also sort of developed late. I was a late bloomer. I don't think I I didn't hit puberty to like my senior year in high school. Uh, You know, I looked like I was five years, you know, younger than what I was. And then suddenly my senior year in high school, I shot up and I was suddenly handsome. And I was like, why now? This should have happened sooner. (laughs) You know, kids were constantly trying to fight me and pick on me. Uh, But luckily, my brother, my older brother and my father were big into you know, martial arts and boxing. And then I, I sort of you know looked after their interests and eventually got into that. And, and that's been huge, pivotal in my life as well. Uh, I really owe martial arts and boxing so much for just giving me coping skills and being strong. But it was also difficult because my father was a bit of a workaholic and I hardly saw the guy, you know, because he grew up so poor in his mindset as long as he was putting food on the table then he was the perfect father because that was the number 1 problem for him growing up and he wanted to solve that so he had this insecurity about money and no matter how much he made no matter how much that savings account got built up he had this anxiety about you know losing it all which ended up costing him his marriage in in a lot of ways and I think for me, I mean, I've never been diagnosed by a professional or gaunting kind of therapist or anything like that. But just through my own research and looking at things, I'm fairly certain that my attachment style is like a a fearful avoidant attachment style. Because all the time I was growing up, because my parents both came from families of divorce, they were very adamant about making their marriage stay together and the kids growing up with both parents no matter what. But you could tell that they weren't really happy with each other at the same time. So, me and my twin sister, we would walk home from school because our school wasn't really that far away. And it was the 90s, you know, uh, parents didn't coddle us as much as they do nowadays. There was no cell phones. It's like, hey, you walk home and, you know, God be willing. But my parents were breaking up, it seemed like once every six months. You know, I would come home from school. Sometimes I would see my dad's stuff sitting in the front yard. And then he's living with you know his sister for two weeks. And then I'm thinking, oh, my parents are getting divorced, everything's gonna change. And then suddenly he's he's coming back home. Oh, we've made up, we fixed things, and he's back. And I'm like, oh, thank, thank God. But then it kept happening over and over and over. And I I think I developed this mindset of you've always got to have one foot in and one foot out because you never know. Mm -hmm. And then on top of that, going to these schools. I had to you know look over my shoulder a lot you know walking home from school sometimes, even being in the bathroom. I remember one time being at a urinal doing my business and these group of guys you know jumped me and and beat me up and stole what was in in my pockets and then luckily when I got into martial arts uh, I learned how to protect myself but I didn't win them all, but my win ratio did go up a little bit and and it took me years to kind of shake some of that off I mean I didn't go back to secondary school and higher education for for some years because of those experiences in school so that that kind of gives you a little bit of a, a broad doesn't tell you everything but that kind of gives you a little bit of a broad spectrum of what I was dealing with in my you know middle high school years
1: so with a with a fearful avoidant attachment disorder has that carried over into your adult life in that When something seems to be going good, you prepare yourself for it to fall apart?
0: Absolutely. A hundred percent. There's been a lot of things that's happened to me in this last year, and I'm sure we'll get into it. But I want to say that this last year, a big part of my life has been sort of healing and unpacking a lot of that stuff because something that I didn't realize was a lot of my romantic relationships haven't worked out in my life and I could never figure out, you know, why and I think a lot of that has to do with that attachment mentality. Well, not even just in romantic relationships, but even in job opportunities. You know, like if a, if a, a manager is like saying, hey, uh, you're doing a great job. We're thinking about giving you a promotion. I'm like, oh, it's a trap. Mm-hmm. I have to look for, you know, a, a way out. And sometimes that, that would cause me to self-sabotage opportunities. And I've only recently realized that I've been uh, doing this, I sort of justified it by saying, ah, you know, I, I just have bad luck. But then I started getting honest with myself and saying, wait a second here, there's a pattern. And if there's a pattern, there has to be a method behind it. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it's it's definitely carried over.
1: Yeah. And so you probably are the one in the relationship that says, I love you first and says it multiple times a day. Uh now you may not even realize it, but
0: well, maybe in the beginning, like I'm a I'm kind of guy that when I fall for someone, I I fall hard. But then once it gets to that point to where commitments are being discussed and, and it starts feeling like it it could turn into something, you know, permanent, that's when all of the yeah then the, you the want out come up yeah e- exactly. And and then once it's over, then I look back in regret and saying, "Wow, that was a great person that I was with." Why did I push them away? I, I, you know, find myself in this sort of uh, bubble of loneliness that was self-caused, you know, and, and it's a a pattern that's happened a couple of times.
1: Yeah. Are you in a relationship now?
0: No. uh, I I just ended one uh, a couple of months ago. The good part of it is, is the chronological timing of it is for anybody listening. So about a year ago, I actually, you know, survived a a gun wound to the back of the head, and I was in a relationship with this woman at the time. We'd been dating off and on for a couple years, actually. I was living outside of Nashville, maybe about an hour away, and I I went to downtown Nashville to meet up with a friend, you know, blow off some steam, whatever, and it started getting late. It was like around midnight. I said, oh man, I, I have to get back home. And as I'm walking back to my car, there's these group of guys holding Bibles, and they're claiming to be a part of this group called the Black Hebrew Israelites. And they believe that, you know, white people and Asians can't go into heaven. At this time, really, for the last couple of years, I haven't really been true to my faith. I've been kind of like a fair-weathered believer, you know, where it's just like, yeah, I go to church, and I believe in God. And, you know, if I mess up, he'll forgive me. Now I get to go live my life however I want. I see these guys, and I've always had a, a strong sense of, of, of justice just growing up and being bullied. I hate bullies, and that's why I work in the legal system you know. currently. So whenever I see something that's totally injustice and something that I see that's just really out of order, I've always been called to do something. I'm not a guy that sits on the sidelines. So I walk up to these guys, and we start trading these Bible verses, and I'm like – you know, and we're trading all these Bible verses, and then someone gets mad in the audience, and it starts getting really – Heated, you could you could feel the tension in the air. And someone pulls out a gun and starts shooting. You know, eight people get hit, me included. The first bullet that went off was the one that hit me. It just scraped the back of my head, put like a small cut on the back of my head. And they were holding this sign with all these like hateful things written on it. And the same bullet that scraped my head was the same bullet that hit their sign and put a hole in the middle of it. Mm -hmm. We all scattered like like roaches. And after that happened, for about two weeks, I was cracking over, you know, open the Bible and I was reading. I was like, oh my God, this is such a, a huge revelation. And I started thinking about my my spirituality and things. And the woman that I had been, you know, dating for a long time, even at that point, we were sort of in a trial separation because we were having, you know, rocky things dealing with commitment. So I went back to her and we sort of made up. And I kid you not, just days later, her father has to go to the hospital because he falls faint. He has really bad diabetes and come to find out he's all, he also has COVID. I was really close to her. We're going to the hospital and I actually moved in with her for a brief time because I was so worried about her being alone. And I was also roomating with someone else. And I was the last person that spoke to him. He died on Christmas day in the morning and I was video chatting with him the previous night and I had to be the one to deliver the news to her that hey, you know your your father passed away, and that was a big blow to me. So in less than one month, I had two brushes with death right in my face. I started having all these narratives in my mind: uh, Are you being trapped again? Are you are you making the wrong choices? You know this this and this. Eventually, make a long story short. Me and this woman that I was dating, she was like, look. If you are so scared of commitment and all these kind of things, then, you know, why are we together? And, and, you know, I I care about you, but, you know, you have to go. And initially it felt kind of relieving for maybe a month or two because I'm like, oh, the pressure's off of me. But then after the smoke clears, I'm not saying that she was perfect, but for the most part, this woman was a really good person to me. And I was like, man, I, I just kind of pushed away. A person that was good to me, just because I, I was uh, afraid of all of these irrational fears. But it's only irrational once you're out of the situation. All these things would start coming back into my mind. Uh, you know, what if we lose attraction for each other? Uh, what if we get married and a divorce happens? What if I, you know, lose everything? You know, because my parents, when they divorced, it was awful, awful divorce. Both of them didn't handle it in the best way especially my father, I, I don't want to share too much detail because I want to respect their privacy. But my mom basically kind of went a little bit wild a little bit, went out with her girlfriends and, you know, going out on the nights and weekends and having fun. But my father just completely just went down this really dark path. And I pretty much had a non existence relationship with him for about 10 years. I was actually married in my early 20s. And that ended in a divorce. And whenever we divorced, I happened to run into my father at a DMV, and I hadn't seen him really in, like I said, probably about ten years. I was like, Dad, and I just immediately told him, Hey, I, I, I went through a divorce, and I need, like, I'm having money problems because of it. And apparently, he was too. And I was like, Well, do you have a job? And he's like, Yeah. I was like, Well, come move in with me. I need someone to help me pay bills. But once he moved in with me, You know, then it was like, okay, we have to talk about the past here. You can't just be gone for 10 years and then we're just roommates. And it was one of the best experiences that ever happened to me. It was one of the wounds that did get to get healed. We talked and talked, stayed up to three o'clock in the morning, and we did this for like days, just unpacking everything. And I really got to know him and we lived together for about a year, and that wound got healed. And we have a pretty good relationship even to this day. It's only now that I've sort of realized like, okay, I've had enough time on this earth to where I can look back and see patterns. And that's kind of the point where I'm at now is just trying to unpack all of that because trying to enter into relationships when all of your wounds haven't been healed is just a recipe for you uh, bleeding all over innocent people and getting their white t-shirts dirty in a sense. Yeah. That's kind of where I'm at now.
1: Yeah. So in, in, Thinking about this, there's a psychological term that I use that most uh, wouldn't, but it's called value processing. And I believe that happens between the ages of like 7 to 13. And during that time, we learn who we are by the people around us and how they treat us. That's how we become to value who we are. And so during that time, you have this unstable home life of back and forth and unsure and you know even in the bullying and in school you you have all of that combined together. And so you carry that that's what molds your personality or in your case puts together that fearful avoidant attachment style. And the only way, to change that personality. Uh, Otherwise, you would just have to cope. You'd have to find your coping mechanisms to, to deal with those styles. But the only way to change it is to have a major traumatic life event. Getting shot in the back of the head is a major traumatic life event. Having to lose someone that you're close to that is your girlfriend's father is a major traumatic life event. And so it can reshape us and remold us into a different type of personality and mold us into how we receive love differently and how we communicate differently. What sounds like has happened here going out on a limb is that when when you were in your accident, and then when your girlfriend's father passed, you began to transition into a personality that was different. And all of a sudden, you weren't the same person that she had loved or had fell in love with. And either that or you begin to self-sabotage the relationship because you felt like things were changing and you were not in control anymore.
0: I think it's more closer to the second one. And then two, I mean, we we broke up around July. And, you know, during this time, I haven't been dating anybody else or anything. And that's been a very conscious decision as much as it's been hard, because I'm a very social person, uh, I made a conscious effort that you know what, I'm not going to try to look for some kind of rebound. I'm not going to go in some bar and try to you know drink my pain away. I'm not going to go to my boxing gym and just you know work out every day and make myself really tired so I don't think about it. I'm I'm going to deal with this, and that's what I've been doing for the last four or five months, and that's what's led me back. To my faith, in large part, is I'm like, okay, God, you know, I, I I did this back in August. You know, I I went down to my knees and and just I had a good cry, and I just confessed all my sins to God. Everything that I've ever said or done in my life that I could remember that I felt guilty about, I, I confessed it. And I was like, look, everything in the world is temporary, and the only relationship in my life that has felt permanent was a relationship with a higher power, a God. That's been very helpful for me. And I also uh, wrote a book and it's called The Ninja Mindset, Awaken the Warrior Within. Like, it sounds cool, but um, I sort of go through my mental process in this book, sort of relaying the lessons that I've learned in boxing and martial arts, you know, like being in the ring and taking those punches and just realizing that just because you're you're losing in this round doesn't mean that you can't, you know, win later on. And then throughout writing that book and getting out some of my emotions, getting back into scriptures, and then also coming across something known as post-traumatic growth. I, I uncovered this, and this is, you know, pretty controversial amongst some psychologists and things. And I learned, according to some studies, that something like approximately 12 to 13 percent of people – After a traumatic experience happens, some people actually come out the other side stronger and better, and the key part of it is is, is self-authoring. Like, What story are you telling yourself in conjunction with your tragedy? So what I had been doing in my life is every breakup that's happened or every tragedy that's happened in my life, I try to lawyer the situation in such a way to where it wasn't my fault. And then I sort of reauthored those situations and looking back and I'm like, okay, where did I contribute to this train wreck that that happened? What part did I play? And once I started doing that, that's when I've been able to start pinpointing some of these things. And I talked to my father a little bit about this and he gave me a really quick, simple analogy. And he said, have you ever heard the story of the man in the yellow cab? And I was like, no. So he's like, there's this guy who gets into a taxi and they get into a car crash. He nearly dies. And once he recovers, he doesn't have a car himself. So he relies on a taxi to get around town. But the problem is now he's afraid of yellow taxis. Every yellow taxi looks like it's a death machine. So he's forced to walk everywhere he goes just because he hasn't got over that experience. So my dad asked me, he's like, well, what are the yellow taxis? in your life, because they're not all bad. They're not all going to crash. That's sort of what led me to you. You know, we have a mutual friend and, and, uh, pastor Broon. He said, man, I think you need to talk to this guy here and he might have some interesting things to say for you. So I'm definitely on a journey. I'm ready to heal. And I feel that I'm a smart guy and I have a lot to offer, but I don't want to hurt anybody else because of the wounds that i'm having i don't want to be that classic story anymore of hurt people hurt people because i know deep down inside i'm a lot better than that
1: yeah so touching on post-traumatic growth or ptg it is very controversial uh within the psychology world Mm -hmm. because sometimes uh ptg can be confused with uh resilience clinically speaking it's a different construct PTG is, is sometimes considered resilience because this post-traumatic issue is causing uh, or the result of this struggle, this trauma causes you to grow. But resiliency is the personal ability to bounce back. But post-traumatic growth uh, refers to what so- happens when someone has difficulty bouncing back, and they experience uh, this traumatic event that challenges their core belief so they endure this psychological struggle even mental illness or uh, a PTSD issue and then ultimately they they find this sense of of personal growth and it's a process that that takes a lot of time and a lot of energy and a lot of struggle and so Someone who may already be very resilient when trauma occurs, they don't always experience that because that person isn't rocked to the core, if you will, uh, by the event. And so, less resilient people uh, may go through the distress and the confusion uh, as they try to understand what this terrible thing that happened to them, what it was, and what it means to them. The issue then lies of Are we really just becoming more resilient or are we actually growing due to the trauma? Either way that you want to put that, you're still growing, you're still moving forward, but it's within the construct of what are we going to call it? What are we going to do?
0: Well, something else I want to add on to is I like your distinction because I know people who went through so many difficult things in their life and they're very resilient, but they're not necessarily better because of that resilience. Like they're they've gotten tougher, mm-hmm. but you can tell that deep down inside that they're not necessarily, you know, happier or changed for it. Whereas with the, the term post-traumatic growth, not only are you tougher and more resilient, but you've also, you know, transformed into something new. Or at least that, that's the way that I, I sort of take it. Sure, I, I think there is a bit of a distinction there.
1: So I think that we could uh, putting this into a martial arts type of scenario here. Which uh, I'm a fifth degree black belt in Aikido. So what what do you do?
0: I'm I'm sort of a martial arts junkie, but um, growing up, uh, initially it was just like straight like American kickboxing and like like Wing Chun Kung Fu. If you ever heard of that, mm-hmm. that, that was sort of like my base. I'm like that Bruce Lee mindset. I, I've sort of dipped my toes in a lot of stuff. But, gotcha. Uh, but yeah.
1: I, I used and I've done to, a little
0: bit of Aikido, a little bit of Aikido, some wrist locks.
1: I used to say I know judo because you don't know that I've got a knife and you don't know that I've got a gun. And, oh, uh, man, brother. Yeah. So within a martial arts look here, when you do your different moves, okay, say that you do something incorrectly and you take a hit. You have the resiliency to keep going, but you're still bleeding. You're still hurting, but you keep moving. It doesn't shut you down. The difference is, is that while you may be resilient, have you grown? Have you learned in that place of how to make sure that that doesn't happen again? And that really is the construct of PTG of, okay, is this resilience or is there actual growth?
0: I love your analogy and you just summed it up perfectly. It's like, I can't tell you how many times, I mean, I actually work part-time as a, a boxing coach now. I see a lot of students all the time that are really tough. They can take 10 punches to the head and, and they keep charging forward. And I'm like, hey, that's great that you're so tough and, and determined, but haven't you ever thought to move your head out of the way and avoid that, that punch instead? You know, so it's like that's a really great analogy. You know, yes, getting getting tougher is good and developing that thick skin. But but if there's not a, a lesson that sinks in behind it, you're just building up a callus that really didn't have to be there to begin with.
1: Yeah. So then the idea comes from, well, isn't this all just coping mechanisms? We are resilient, but we learn to block the shot or to move our head, as you said. But is that not just a coping mechanism? And so that's where psychology gets kind of bent on each other. Of what are we going to call it? Is this post-traumatic growth or is this coping? So I mean, it really is just in in the psychology world, we're big on what things are called, and they're called that for a reason. And so it kind of gets kind of gets little uh, muddy water there. Okay, so I wanted wanted to go back a step now. I don't know if, if you know this or not, but I'm a pastor. I, I pastor a, a church here in North Little Rock, and I've been in full-time ministry for about 15 years now, and, and I do this uh, full-time, too, uh, in mental health work. And so I, I want to get back to the point of, with you knowing that, of where you said that you really begin to pull away and lean into your faith— Now, as a pastor, I'm going to tell you, that's great. You need to. As a therapist, I'm going to tell you is that, yes, you need to lean into your faith, but you're still bleeding. You're still hurting. And so a lot of times what we can do is we can, here's a bad analogy for you. We can put the faith bandaid on it, but we're really not letting it heal because we're trying to cover it up with something else. It works for a while. It gets you through. But at some point in time, you're going to have to rip the Band-Aid off and let it air out in order to heal. And so as, as you said, you know, you went to the altar, you prayed, you cried. And yeah, there's something that I can't even explain about what happens when you cry. Uh, George Yance once said, if the eyes will leak, the head won't swell. And so, you know, there, there is just something about that, but there is also something about saying out loud, this is where I'm at. I don't understand why I'm here, but this is where I'm at. And whether it's that you do that within your faith or whether that you, you do that with a therapist or, or a family member, someone that you trust, there still has to come that realization that, hey— this is real. Not that God isn't real. Not that our spirituality, or our faith isn't real. But this is this is real life right here in front of me, and and I've got to do something about it. Uh, I think about, and I'm not trying to diss any type of religion, because uh, that would be the last thing that I'd want to do. But we, I, you, th- I think about these. Uh, snake handling churches you know up in Kentucky and and, and Virginia area where I know the,
0: exactly what you're talking about so
1: they believe that you know as scripture says they can take up serpents and if they have faith that they won't be bit well when they are bit they don't go to the hospital because that would be a lack of faith and then they die like idiots they die and so a lot of times if we're not careful, we will let our faith cover up physical things, and we do that so much in mental health. It is, it is. I see it so much. It, it's on a scale that is concerning. Now, once again, I'm a pastor, and yes, we need to lean into our faith, and yes, we have to be there, but have you experienced, even in these times where your faith is on point, that you still have this guilt or this shame or this this thought process of why is this happening? Why did I waste this part of my life? Why Is, is there that realization of the actuality of reality in front of you?
0: A hundred percent, you know, uh, in everything that you said, you know, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm normally so much more talkative, but I'm really just soaking up and, and learning from you. I'm right now probably more heavy in my faith. Than I've been in probably, gosh, 15 years. You know, whenever I was in middle school and high school, I was super religious. You know, um, I was kind of like a Bible nerd when I was in in high school and stuff. Uh, but then after I got, I got out of high school, I started you know worrying more about you know the world and things. But I, I know exactly what you're talking about because even though. Developing a relationship with a God, a higher power, something that's 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 permanent and, and infinite and never going to leave me gives me a great sense of comfort. You know, I, I'd be a liar if I said that I was one of these people who just said, oh, yeah, uh, I, I came to God and got baptized and everything fell off of me. And then, yeah, I'm I'm cured of, of, of every negative thought. If that's happened to someone out there and then, hey, kudos to you. But uh, that hasn't been the case for me. Uh, there has been some healing, but yeah, I still find myself, you know, kind of metaphorically punching myself in the head and saying, man, like, why did you screw up that amazing opportunity? Or, you know, like, what have you been doing for the past couple of years? Like, you know, you, you could have been doing this and this and, and yeah, th- there's still a lot of those conversations that, that float around in my head.
1: How much guilt or shame do you feel in your everyday life?
0: Well, I mean, it's hard to put a a number or anything on it. Uh, th- that's a very difficult question. On one hand, I mean, it's just like this last relationship that I was in. You know, she, she was a, a really great woman. I'm not going to say that she was perfect, but for anyone who's in their 20s or 30s, we know how crazy the dating world is out there right now with all the sexual immorality, the drug use, all those kind of things. And this particular girl didn't, you know, have those kind of issues. And, you know, she was definitely uh, a pearl among dirty rocks out there. And, yeah, if I just sit here and just really, you know, think hard on it, I I mean, I can think myself into a depression. But then at the same time, it's like yesterday is gone and I I can't necessarily live there. So I don't want to say that I had this catatonic level of guilt to where I'm thinking about jumping off my house yeah uh, on a, on a daily basis, yeah, I, I do get those occasional little you know ticks if I'm out in public, you know, if I see a couple holding hands or if I see a, a happy family, I might think back to my childhood. So yeah, I do get those little glimpses those those little flashes they they do exist.
1: Mm-hmm. And do you know why they exist?
0: Whoa, <laughs> I don't think anyone's ever asked me that before. Why do those feelings? Okay, I have an answer for you. Because I know, deep down in my heart of hearts, between me and God, I know the good that I've done in the world. And I know that I possess a lot of great talents, and I've helped a lot of people. And the stupid things that I've done in my life, I just know in hindsight that, that I'm better than that. I view myself as a, a luxury sports vehicle, and I just lost a race to a 1990 Honda Civic. That's the way that I look at these situations. Where it's like, dude, you're better than that. Like, did you really just let that happen? And you have to, you know, wrestle with those regrets from the past, and then looking forward to what may or may not come in the future, but still. Being together enough to take care of your responsibilities in the now.
1: That's a great answer, but it's not the right answer.
0: Mm, okay, I'm listening.
1: So, the reason that you get those guilt and shame issues and times is because of the fearful, avoidant attachment, even within yourself. You continue to remind yourself that, oh, because of this, then I have this guilt, I have this shame. I'm not ever going to make anything of myself. It's all going to fall apart at some point in time. And yeah, I am the sports car who just lost to a Honda Civic, but I'm a sports car, but I lost. You know, it, it, it's that constant of, okay, this happened. So now it's all going to fall apart. And that's the world, the, the mindset that you're sitting in. The answer to that is to realize that. There is more to life than just failing. There is more to life than just winning. Sometimes we have to understand it's not about losing. It's not about winning. It's about living. And if we are constantly in that guilt and shame mindset and constantly in that, well, yeah, this is going good, so it's about to all fall apart mindset, then we're not living. And so what you have to do is learn to live in the now and you can do that spiritually. You can do that. That's how we, we walk by faith and not by sight. We do that. But to walk by faith is a very scary thing to do because that doesn't leave any room for us to doubt because we're not walking in our own. We're walking in him.
0: It's really, it's really crazy. Some of the things that you're saying are are so pertinent to some of the, Conversations that I've had with, with friends and family members, and especially my renewed relationship with with my father, because he's also has a fearful, avoidant, you know, kind of personality. I I, I always told myself I promised that I'm not going to become my father, and I and I did because that's what led to my parents' divorce. Is my dad always had one foot in and one foot out all the time, and that's probably because of his childhood. Well, I know probably it, it, it is mm-hmm. because some of the things that he told me was much more difficult than what I had went through. And he's going through his healing process at the age of, you know, he's like 62. And only in the last couple of years has he had some, you know, normalization in his life. And I don't want to wait until I'm, I'm 60 to, to, to start, you know, letting go of things. But something that he said, you know, kind of helped me is if you do everything that you're supposed to do and you handle your side of the deal, if that other side messes up, yeah, it's going to be painful, but you get to be guilt-free. You're not God, so you, you, you can't make a prenuptial agreement with success and failure.
1: Yeah, but while you are guilt-free and you know that you've done everything right, your mind is still going to tell you that you did something wrong.
0: Yeah, that's the hard part.
1: Mm-hmm. And so you've got to learn to tell your mind that you did everything that you could do right.
0: The thing that that I I couldn't understand about myself was even in this last relationship, you know, I mean, I, I haven't had like this huge, extensive, you know, dating history. I'm not, you know, Mr. Mac out here or anything like in this last relationship with this decent woman. It was very strange because it was like the closer that she got to me, the more I was taking steps back. Mm-hmm. But then whenever she would get fed up and she took a step back, then I, I find myself longing to you know reel it back in. And it, it just seems so silly. It's very counterintuitive. And that's what I'm trying to figure out is where does this mindset stem from? And it's so illogical. you know. It, it's almost like someone who's hungry, but they're afraid to eat. And then once they're presented with that food – they they don't want it, but then whenever it's taken away, they realize how hungry they are. It's it's very illogical.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, it comes from the childhood trauma. That's that's where it all stems from. And until you work through that, then unless you develop unhealthy coping skills, then it's it's always going to be there.
0: It, 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 is this something that you've heard of before with other patients?
1: Man, let me is this tell you,
0: fairly common.
1: It's not uncommon at all. Uh, and, and just from the world we live in. that That's just, that's where we're at. The reason that we back away is because we don't want to be hurt. But the reason that we pull towards them when they start backing away is because we don't want them to hurt. And so it's this constant tug of war. If, if I were to say, okay, um, Randall, I'm going to send you 50 bucks, you're probably going to, in the back of your mind, going, okay, what does Doc Brian want from me? What is, he, what is he setting me up for?
0: Absolutely.
1: So when you get into a relationship, even though you really do like that person, when they start treating you with love and respect, you are predisposed to say, okay, what are they trying to box me in for? Instead of just letting them love you. Yeah. But here's what you do. Tell them, I don't know why you would want to love me. I'm not used to this. I'm probably going to pull away, but I need you to understand that it has nothing to do with you. And on the front side of that relationship, you have lost control because you have told them it's nothing to do with them. It's all me. So then if you lose You already knew you were going to lose
0: Mm.
1: and so it's not about losing it's about winning
0: it's about being able to control the outcome even if it's a negative outcome you knew it was coming and that gives you a sense of control
1: Mm -hmm. yes but you don't let that you don't let that control get to a point of where you're controlling everything in the relationship though
0: yeah. You know, I've, I've never been someone that, that was like been physically abusive or anything that's never been kind of any kind of issue or nothing. I, I would say like the only negative or toxic thing that I've done in a relationship, aside from sort of that tug of war of, you know, hot and cold and, 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 the, and the distance thing is whenever – we meet here in the middle, we have some very beautiful, you know, moments, but it's only when those conversations happen about like, Oh, Hey, we, you know, we've been together for a little while. Like, what do you think about marriage? What do you think about kids? And, and that's when all of the anxiety comes up and I'm like, well, let's talk about that in six months. Let, you know, let me kick it down the road. And sometimes I would even find myself and it's pretty embarrassing to you know, admit it, but you know uh, it's not just for me, but you know, for any listeners out there, but I mean, I consider myself an ethical person and everything, but sometimes I would find myself, let me, uh, you know, talk to this secretary or or this attractive person and, you know, flirt with them a little bit, even if I don't intend to be unfaithful. But just to remind myself that in case things don't work out, I'm still desirable. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, I can still fall somewhere. That's
1: self-sabotage, 100%. (laughs) Yeah, that's... Okay, well, at least if I'm going to fall, I have somewhere to fall to. Yeah. yeah. But
0: then at the same time, this person's trying to love me, and I don't have to fall anywhere. Mm-hmm. But I've convinced myself that this thing is not going to work anyways in the end, but I also don't want it to leave me at the same time. It's just talking about it in this logical uh, fashion for anyone on the outside watching this conversation. It, it looks silly because it is silly. To put it bluntly, it feels like there's always two armies sort of, you know, fighting right here for uh, you know, are you gonna turn left? Or are you gonna turn right? Well, or or I shouldn't say two armies, but I should say a prosecutor and, and a defendant arguing a case constantly in my head about which decisions should you go. And it reminds me of this Russian proverb that says, if you chase two rabbits, you lose them both. And that's happened to me so many times in life, where I have my mind on all of these exit strategies, and then I end up in a position where, oh, now there's no options because they've all got they've all gotten fed up with me with this deliberating that they've moved on.
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think it was Gary V. Are you you know who Gary V. is? Oh
0: yeah, yeah, I like Gary V. Uh,
1: Gary V. is the one that said, "If you have a Plan B, you've already failed."
0: Hence why some people end up not getting married once they discuss the prenuptial agreement. And, and, and this is a monkey wrench, too, that we haven't even discussed, which could be another trigger or complicated part in this whole dialogue is my profession. I've worked as a, as a paralegal and I've done private investigative work for the last you know eight years. I've been to, I can't tell you how many documents that I've written up for uh, for divorce. I've done prenuptial agreements. I've sat down with couples. I've watched hundreds of relationships get destroyed right in front of me. And then I'm getting paid to defend one party over the other. So I have all of these real life examples playing out in my head also. And even though I enjoy the work at the same time, it's kind of like, Experience is good, but sometimes you can see so much to where it clouds your own reality. Just because it's those people's realities doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be you. And something that I've been learning to do is, well, even though you've handled all of these divorce cases as a paralegal and you've done investigative work and and you've seen the ugliest of societies, I've been trying to reprogram my brain to think about those cases where the couples did reconcile and there was a happy ending. Or I was investigating someone who was accused of all these horrible things and turned to find out he was completely innocent and he was a really good guy. For every story that's out there about how horrible it is to be married or, or how horrible this restaurant is, there's another review that says this is the best place I've ever eaten.
1: Yeah, and so what you have done is you've built walls around your heart to protect you from being hurt, but it's those same walls that are keeping you from being loved.
0: hundred percent.
1: Yeah. So if you were a cardiologist and your father came in with a heart attack and needed quadruple bypass surgery and you could do it, would you? Or would you defer it to someone else who is as qualified or better qualified than you are? Wow. And that's what you're doing. That's what you're doing. You're looking at this and saying, okay, I want a relationship, but I'm really close to how all of this is going to go wrong. Mm. And so I can't have a successful relationship because I am staying put on how it's all going to fall apart. And so some way or another, you're going to have to disassociate work life from personal life. You're going to have to be one person at work and another person at home.
0: In some ways, I kind of regret bringing it up because I don't think it's it's the primary source. I, I really think that the primary source is what I directly experienced in childhood, but, but I'd be a liar if I said that the things that I've seen in my work didn't contribute oh. to it.
1: Oh, yeah. I would agree that it was the things in your childhood that, that are uh, causing the basis of all of this, but what is happening is is not helping. You know, everything that you're seeing is not helping.
0: It's reinforcing. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's like the things that I went through in my childhood was like the original wound. And then seeing all these other examples in my work life is kind of like adding in, you know, reinforcement. Like, yep, you know.
1: And but, and how many people do you go out on a date on and you do a background check or you look into them before you even go on the first date?
0: Oh, 100 um, percent. I don't do that. It's it's unethical. But now. Well, Um, maybe
1: maybe not an official background check, but social media.
0: Yeah, looking at their Facebook or something like that. Mm -hmm. Maybe not like initially. I mean, because like I said, you know, I'm not some you know Mac that's going out on a on a date every weekend. I don't have this huge dating you know history. But like even this relationship that I was in, I mean, yeah, sometimes I would find myself, you know, maybe analyzing social media post a little bit too much or like, Oh, you know, who's this guy that that liked this, this post or, you know, what did he mean by this? Or, you know, what did he mean by that? And then trying to look for things to, to reinforce what I already believe about the world.
1: Yeah. You said it, <laughs> trying to look for things. You've, you've <laughs> got to turn that off because when you look for things, you're going to find them.
0: Mm, that's true.
1: It's kind of the old adage, if you think your partner is cheating and you ask them to go through their phone, you're gonna find something that makes you feel like you had the legitimate right to look. That's true. Because if you look, you're going to find something.
0: If you think someone's cheating on you or or you think that someone's out to get you, you could pretty much construe any sort of innocent comment and and twist it and do this mental gymnastics in your head to where it has to mean this thing to To verify your worldview so that you can say, ha, I knew I was right.
1: Yeah. Well, being in the legal system, you would know that one of the hardest things to prove is intent.
0: That is true.
1: And why is it hard to prove?
0: Because we're not psychics. We're not mind readers.
1: But, But in relationships, we want to... Set down and say, Oh, this is what you meant by this, or this was your intent. But we can't even prove that beyond a reasonable doubt in a legal system. So, what makes you think we can do that in relationships?
0: And, and I guess also, too, I have to consider the alternative. Yes, I, I'm protecting myself because I no longer have this responsibility of this promotion or this relationship or whatever. But the alternative of it is. Is that oh now you have to be back into this space where you don't have this emotional support, you don't have this person in your life anymore. You know, you, I know that we've been talking about romance and and different things a lot, but even in uh, in in business. So I've you know I've written several books and things, and uh, I've opened up martial art gyms and things like that, and I've had friends, close friends, try to you know invest in me. And you know, sign contracts and and try to build something. You know, like one of my good friends, he's an expert marketer, and he's like, he's like, man, you are so smart. You have so much knowledge. I could promote you and just and just help you just take off. And and I think that he's telling the truth. And I've been friends with them for you know five six years. But then that that thing activates. Mm. Well, what if, what if we end up you know becoming enemies, and I have to sue him.
1: Mm or does he really think this or is he trying to market me and sell me into doing something
0: Exactly and then it goes down this whole you know rabbit hole let's talk about it maybe around the summertime and then the person gets fed up and they're like I'm out of here and then I get mad and say oh man you know why is this person gone now Yeah and it's kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy
1: Yeah I have kind of a general rule and that is one if you don't know what to do do nothing Mm. And two, if after 24 hours, you still don't know what to do, try to figure out what would be the best for you. Not put in all these scenarios, but what is the right now? And even in relationships, we may just have to get down and say, okay, business-wise, what makes the most sense? And then once you determine what that is, ask two to three of your closest friends who you trust what their response would be. And if your response matches theirs, do it. Because then you don't have to self-sabotage. You can blame it on them. (laughs) That you were all in consensus. So it wasn't you that failed. It was us that failed.
0: Mm, I like that.
1: And so, but it still gives you the ownership in it. It still gives you, you know, you are the one at the end of the day that made the decision, but you made the decision based on everybody else's input, but then there are going to be those times where you just got to pull the trigger and you just got to do it and live very intentionally. And someone in your in your sense uh, of, of an attachment disorder, you may just have to start looking at life as a business. What makes sense in the here and now? And just quit kicking things down the road. If you want to kick something down the road, put a date and a time to when you're going to revisit it and that way you're not just intentionally saying i'm not going to deal with this right now so let's kick it on down the road be very intentional if if you're in a relationship and she starts talking about marriage say something to the effect of i don't know that i'm there yet can we revisit this in 3 months or 6 months or you know but but be intentional but be honest too don't say i don't think that i'm ready for that and so you're probably going to break up with me now because you want that and you know don't be that self-sabotage
0: mm. you know
1: be very intentional live in the moment and and move forward I have a deacon here at the church he's 90 years old and one of the best pieces of advice he had two pieces of advice he's given me that that have just been golden the first one was don't ever outrun your blockers
0: expound upon that
1: if you are the quarterback, And you are taking down the field because you, uh, you know, in a quarterback rush, you have got clear, don't ever outrun your people around you who are going to protect you. So don't get ahead of yourself. Don't try to force things. Just let it happen. Let it happen naturally. The second thing that he tells me is never trip on a log behind you. And that's where that self-doubt and that guilt and that shame, all of that come in because that was, that was back then. That's not today. That was a week ago, and I don't have time to think about that because I've got to deal with what I'm dealing about today.
0: I think something that you said earlier when you said be honest about how you're feeling, that's something that I definitely didn't do even in this relationship where I might briefly expound upon it, but... I didn't specifically tell this person, hey, this is exactly what I'm afraid of. Can you address it for me? Yeah. Instead, I would just sort of continue the prosecutor versus defendant in my own head and then maybe make some passing comments or maybe drop a hint or something, Mm -hmm. but then pretty much left it all on myself. So she's on the outside living her life and hey, I'm treating this guy nicely, like you know, what's his problem? And then meanwhile. I'm having like a whole college dissertation going down in my brain when I could have just sat her down and just said, hey, these are the fears that I'm having, and I want you to address them from from your standpoint.
1: And so when you don't do that and you self-sabotage the relationship, she's left thinking that she did something wrong.
0: And that's where some extra guilt comes in, too, because, I mean, I don't know what's going to happen in the future uh, you know, whether we end up reconciling, which is a probably less than one percent, but uh, or she goes into a future relationship, whatever. There's a good chance that, you know, putting her through that hot and cold and back and forth could affect her in the future.
1: There's not a could. There is a is and will.
0: And that makes me feel awful.
1: Well, there's a way to fix it. How so? Call her and be honest.
0: Or at least write a letter.
1: At least write a letter. Yeah
0: two major things that I've pulled away so far in this conversation is I like your idea about having a council. Like whenever I'm making the, these huge life changing decisions, taking, you know, my my closest, you know, three or so friends or family members and, and making a, sort of a, a group think decision And then, you know, ultimately it's left on my shoulders and I pull the trigger and whether it works out or not. And it's like, well, you know, we were kind of all in this Mm -hmm. and that that kind of gives me some more confidence and ideas to to think future problems out through. And then secondly, the forgiveness part about reaching out to people that you've hurt and doing what you can to, to sort of explain the situation in order to free yourself and to free them, because I don't want to send uh, or leave behind another broken person to potentially break someone else or to be taken advantage of. That's what seems to happen with broken people: is that they they continue going on hurting other people or they continue going on being the victim. Mm-hmm. And I don't want. And I don't want that life path for anybody.
1: Yeah. Uh, What you're going to have to realize, though, is that while you do give that explanation to them, you give it and you leave it. It's not your job to make them understand it.
0: Mm, I'm glad that you said that because I can pretty much guarantee that the message will be received and read, but I can't mess with people's free will and I can't force them to digest it. Mm Mm-hmm or digest it in a way that is palatable to me, it has to be left into the chance at that point. But but, but at least I can hold on to something saying that, well, I tried to make some sort of rectification happen. Mm -hmm. And that says something about my character, if I'm willing to do that.
1: Well, it goes back to the old adage of if you hurt me and you ask me for forgiveness, is it on you whether or not I forgive you or not? Or is that on me?
0: It's like the other old adage, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't force them to drink it. Yeah, And not everyone wants to accept that, you know, it's like, hey, I've prepared this food for you. You have to eat it right. No, they don't. But the gesture was at least made.
1: Well, and it's for you, not for them.
0: Mm, for self-healing. Mm-hmm. No matter what happens, if I if I do enter, let's say that I entered into a new relationship, you know, two or three years from now, I most certainly don't want to carry any of those same baggages and then have to do this whole process over again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So for you, there's going to be two key things is that you've got to be honest with yourself and those around you, even when it hurts. And you've got to be very intentional in everything that you do. And those are the two things that are going to help you to cope with this fearful avoidant attachment disorder. Well, Randall, it's been good to have you on Doc Talks today. I appreciate you and I hope giving you a little bit of enlightenment here of, of some things to to at least try.
0: Absolutely. You've given me at least two or three things that you know after we end this uh, conversation, I'm gonna go right down and start trying to you know actively put it into practice. I'm gonna continue you know talking to my my mentors. And, and yeah, putting these things into application and not just saying, oh, that was an interesting conversation that I had with Doc Bryan. Now I'm going to go back to, you know, doing what I've been doing. Whew, there, there was a couple of times in this conversation where it was like, oh, gut punch, you know, let me hold it together. But uh, I needed that.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it, it, it happens. And while this was not therapy, I want to be very clear about that. Therapy in and of itself is traumatic. Don't let our conversation here send you into a spiral of guilt and shame and nah, all that kind nah, of stuff. Nah. Th-
0: th- this was just a friendly conversation.
1: Now, you're saying that, but is that how you really feel about it?
0: well, we're 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 kind of playing semantics because, <laughs> you know, uh, and the reason why I say that is something that you say to somebody in passing, there's been stories that I've heard of people, you know, saying like, "Oh, I was ready to commit suicide, but then someone said I had, you know, nice shoes that day Mm -hmm. and it stopped me. So is anything really trivial?
1: No, but with you, you've got to be intentional.
0: Ah, okay. Now you're talented. Well, I view this conversation as a meeting of the minds.
1: Sounds good to me. Where can our listeners find you if they wanted to get in contact with you?
0: very easily you know you can just uh, you know Google my name Randall Stroud and I promise that I'm, I'm not totally crazy. I, I have some parts of me that are together. I was very vulnerable in this conversation but yeah I've written all kinds of books on martial arts, uh, the legal system. One of my big passions is teaching people just the basics about the legal system. I, I think that sort of knowing the, the the basic standards on how to write, a legal motion, or just what your basic rights are is on par nowadays with learning how to change uh, attire. Hmm. And of course, boxing and martial arts been huge therapy in my life. So the legal system, boxing, martial arts, these are things I've written about extensively. Those areas I'm very good at. And just as you've shared some of your expertise with me, anyone who's interested in these topics, uh, reach out to me and I'll try to teach you everything that I know about it and, and encourage you if you're interested.
1: All right. We'll make sure to put some kind of contact to you in the description of this podcast. Of course, I've been Doc Brian. This is Doc Talks. You can find all of my social media at the bottom of my webpage of thedocbrian.com. Doc Talks is a part of the Be Frank Network. Check out all of our podcasts there at befranknetwork.com. Randall, once again, thank you so much for, for being here with us today.
0: God bless you. Thank you for having me on.
1: Thank you. We'll talk to you later.